A letter will be posted tomorrow from across the ocean. Jefferson and Time will open this letter and marvel at its contents. It stitches together one of the facets of a multifaceted, maybe the multifaceted, American at the turn of the 19th century. You'd be all right to have Jefferson awaiting this letter where most of us see him, at his Piedmont home outside of Charlottesville, Virginia, Monticello. Much like Jefferson, you can imagine Monticello in many ways, an architectural marvel, an idyllic mountain retreat, a mecca, a meeting place for the duration of Jefferson's life, or as a slave labor camp that typifies the contradictions with the man, the myth, and the legend. And if you don't want to see Jefferson in Monticello, you can place him in Shadwell, the mountain retreat where he was born, or Richmond, where he served as governor during the War for Independence, or Poplar Forest in the Blue Ridge, where the Virginia legislature fled to after the British invaded during that War for Independence, or Philadelphia, writing that war's justification, its declaration. You could place him in Paris before Washington was elected president, place him with John Ledger. How about William and Mary before the tumults of revolution, or Jefferson, Missouri, well afterward, his tombstone, sitting along the Missouri. Or head further west, the Jefferson River at Three Forks, Montana, or the state of Jefferson, or Portland, Oregon, where his likeness was torn down in 2020. Everywhere and nowhere. Indelible. But was all this inevitable? Welcome to Expeditions, a podcast around Lewis and Clark, where we explore the history and historiography one day at a time. We are at Expeditions Pod everywhere, social media, Patreon if you want to support the show, as well as our website. This is the beginning of Mile Marker 3, episode Jefferson 1, Little Mountains. Thomas Jefferson was an autodidact. A recent biographer notes that the word came into use in 1748, five years after Jefferson's birth. Jefferson had a scientific bent that was shaped by the Enlightenment. He's the reason that we use decimals for our dollars and cents that did away with the pound, shilling, and the pence. He was self-taught and an avid architect, taking 40 years to finish Monticello. He loved almonds. He was a firm believer in the maple sugar bubble of the late 18th century. He was a gifted violinist. He was distrustful of medicine, despite being correspondence with many practitioners, such as Benjamin Rush. As Paul Cutright put it, quote, Before he had attained the age of 42, he had lost his father and mother, his closest friend, Dagny Carr, his favorite sister, Jane, three children, two daughters and his only son, and the bitterest blow of all, his beloved wife, Martha, end quote. And that distrust lasted his entire life, as he later veered his grandson away from the study of medicine. That said, he also read Swiss medical writer Samuel Auguste David Tissot and began to bathe his feet in cold water every morning for its supposed health benefits. In this era, the notion of inventor and innovator were blurred. Depending on your definition, he invented or innovated a plow, the moldboard of least resistance, as he described it to Robert Patterson, as well as a wheel cipher that we'll see in its ties with the expedition. There is, of course, the swivel chair, his auto pen or polygraph, which copies correspondence by duplicating your brush strokes onto another sheet of paper. There was the folding ladder and the macaroni machine, also macaroni and cheese, bringing the recipe back from France, serving, quote, a pie called macaroni at a state dinner, no doubt attended by his secretary, Meriwether Lewis, the cheese likely sourced from the mammoth cheese wheel 
that sat in Lewis's bedroom in today's east room of the White House. He had beds hung by ropes and suspended into the crevices of Monticello, much like a Murphy bed. He had a revolving bookstand that could keep five books open at once before collapsing in on itself. Of course, there were the mechanical dumbwaiters to reduce how often dinner guests would have to see his enslaved staff, his great clock at the entrance of his home, and the double glass doors that opened to his parlor that were connected by weights and chains to gracefully open and close together. He tinkered with his own version of the sundial, the pedometer, and the Bible, cutting out the supernatural elements and centering, if sometimes incongruously, the life of Jesus Christ. It wouldn't always work out. See the doomed Ferguson's perspective machine that he tried to have custom-made from William Jones in London. He wanted it to make scale drawings of inventions, despite its use for larger objects such as buildings. He'd also apparently written a description for an apparatus for city street drains that would catch some of the runoff water, but block the fumes from coming out of the sewers. And his innovations weren't just mechanical. Out of his tinkering with the Bible, he also kept track of plants in his garden book and would introduce tons of flora and fauna, including Indian corn at the garden of the Grille des Chalots, just barely outside of Paris, rice and olives in the south, as well as Osage plums that we'll talk about in due time. Thomas Jefferson is not the main character of this podcast, but he is in the periphery. He's the head of the country during most of this run, and it's best that we get on a similar page with him. In the end, he wanted to be remembered for three things. His tombstone crafted himself notes, quote, Here was Barry Thomas Jefferson, author of the Declaration of American Independence, of the Statute of Virginia for Religious Freedoms, and the father of the University of Virginia, end quote. The first is unquestionably resonant today, while the other two aren't as immediately well known. Looking back now at the 1990s, the star of Jefferson was falling again. The 250th anniversary of his birth came and went in 1993, but not without fundamental damage to the more stoic and disciplined persona that he'd had during the 20th century. Joseph Ellis notes two seeds were planted in the late 60s, early 70s that were being cultivated in the early 90s. One being Winthrop Jordan's White Over Black, and the other being Eric McKittrick's 1970 review of Jefferson biographers, the so-called Charlottesville Mafia, if you're more inclined, of Dumas Malone and Merrill Peterson. Ellis quotes McKittrick on Jefferson's accommodation and dependence upon slavery. Quote, What about those traits of character that aren't heroic from an angle? The frequent smugness, the covert vindictiveness, the hand-washing, the downright hypocrisy. End quote. I was in second grade when this essay was published, learning about Thomas Jefferson for the first time. A few years later, I would be taking a field trip about an hour south of Manassas to Charlottesville. But by AP history in high school, in the diverse classrooms that I've been educated in, Jefferson's contradictory nature was overwhelming. That it seemed to mirror our nation's own impulse made it even harder to swallow. Jefferson's cultural cachet hasn't evaporated, but the way you remember him continues to evolve. Like many, I was taught to think of Jefferson as a foil for Alexander Hamilton. Their two visions for America and competition, playing out not only in the country's economic outlooks, but also its historiographic. 
Jefferson's world of white yeoman farmers in the South and West are contrasted, we're told, with the bustling mechanized seaport towns, to say nothing of Jefferson's nail factory at Monticello or the forced labor of hundreds of bodies itself being mechanic and heavily capitalized. Though Hamilton wouldn't live to see it, one can imagine his thoughts during Jefferson's disastrous embargo at the end of his presidency, to say nothing again of how all of American history has been reduced to these two in some way. The push and the pull are decidedly Hamiltonian moment, punctuated by the 2016 musical, a new high for Hamiltonianism. But I suppose that we'll wait for the next phase of Jeffersonianism, beaten to a pulp as it was in the early 2000s. As most of the country lives outside the original 13 colonies, the Northwest Ordinance of 1784, written by Jefferson, seems important to bring up. It laid out the boundaries for future states, the mode of temporary governance. It outlined the incorporation of those territories into the United States as equals with representation, though the abolition of slavery, which was written into the ordinance, was removed with predictable results. Naturally, this led to Kentucky statehood in 1792, followed by the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions, followed by the future nullification crises, and eventually the Civil War. Of course, there's the Revolution of 1800, taught as a victory for, quote, pure republicanism, in Jefferson's words, over monarchical tendencies of John Adams and the Federalist Party. We will explore that soon enough. However, if Hamilton remained a fixed enemy of Thomas Jefferson, the transformation after the supreme falling out between him and John Adams rekindling their famed correspondence in the twilight years of their life, remains a moving testament, along with both men dying on the same day, July 4th, 1826, the 50th anniversary of the Declaration. But for many, Thomas Jefferson is, mainly, a walking contradiction. He'll famously write, quote, Prudence, indeed, will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes, and accordingly all experiences hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer, while evils are sufferable, than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed." End quote. While also noting that John Adams' son-in-law, William Stephen Smith, a decade later in 1787, quote, God forbid we should ever be twenty years without such a rebellion, and famously, quote, the tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. It is its natural manure. End quote. In the same vein, but writing about injustice of generational debts, Jefferson writes broadly that, quote, It may be proved that no society can make a perpetual constitution or even a perpetual law. The earth belongs always to the living generation. End quote. Of course, this is another contradiction of the man. A philosopher with expensive tastes and multiple exquisite estates was projecting his own fears of himself and of his generation. This, of course, wasn't uncommon for Thomas Jefferson, especially when it came to his greatest contradiction, slavery. For every condemnation of the institution, or effort to outlaw it in the West, or the moral grappling that he may go through on any given day, he also maintained a slave labor camp to his death, which built and provided for not only his expensive tastes, but also the time to sit and think and write, allowing him to become the literary embodiment of human freedom and liberty, while never living up to the physical embodiment. The accusations of half-heartedly pushing to abolish the slave trade despite well knowing 
the domestic trade would monstrously overshadow its predecessor, or supporting gradual emancipation to seem reasonable, but knowing that no enslaver in their right mind would ever consent to one ounce of their control being disrupted or valid. He couldn't see a world where a formerly enslaved black person wouldn't want to enact the genocidal violence that he and all the other southern enslaver aristocrats had feared would come from emancipation. Justice is on one scale, he wrote, and self-preservation in the other. Of course, this stemmed from the fact that Jefferson was a racist, yet used his authority at the head of the house to coerce Sally Hemings, who bore him multiple children, into whatever relationship he desired. Even though, at least on paper, he abhorred the prospect of interracial coupling and would attempt to do the math on how many generations were needed to pass for one's ancestry to purge one fully African person. Quote, It became a mathematical problem of the same class with those on the mixtures of different liquors or different metals. End quote. As noted in Jill Lepore's These Truths, quote, The whole commerce between master and slave is a perpetual exercise of the most boisterous passions, the most unremitting despotism on the one part, and degrading submission on the other. Jefferson wrote in 1782, the year of his wife's death. The man must be a prodigy who can retain his manners and morals, undepraved by such circumstances. End quote. Sure, Jefferson wasn't alone here, but as Paul Finkelman said, quote, the test of Jefferson's position on slavery is not whether he was better than the worst of his generation, but whether he was the leader of the best. Jefferson fails that test. Of course, the contradictions lead us right back into our own time. Gordon Wood warned 30 years ago about appropriating Jefferson to the right or to the left, even how we understand it in the United States. Quote, he was undoubtedly complicated. He mingled the loftiest visions with the stoop backroom politicking. He spared himself nothing and was a compulsive shopper, yet he extolled the simple yeoman farmer who was free from the lures of the marketplace. He hated the obsessive money-making, the proliferating banks, the liberal capitalistic world that emerged in the northern states in the early 19th century, but no one in America did more to bring that world about. Although he kept the most tidy and meticulous accounts of his daily transactions, he never added up his profits and losses. He thought public debts were the curse of a healthy state, yet his private debts kept mounting, and he borrowed and borrowed again to meet his rising expenditures. He was a sophisticated man of the world who loved no place better than his remote mountaintop home in Virginia. This slave-holding aristocrat ended up becoming the most important apostle for liberty and democracy in American history. End quote. John Bowles concludes, quote, Tragically, Jefferson, who best articulated the nation's loftiest aspirations, could not perceive or refuse to recognize the full implications of his principles. He was the architect of American liberty, almost despite himself. End quote. Today we're met with the monotonous hum of, he was a product of his own time refusing, of course, to acknowledge those who spoke out against slavery and acted with conviction who, I suppose, weren't themselves products of their time. And perhaps that's a safer place to be. Jefferson cannot fill the expectations that succeeding generations have placed on him. So maybe we won't do that. Perhaps there is something to the hysteria of denunciation and the hysteria of exaltation, as Merrill Peterson put it. 
the pleas of 30, 50 now years ago to humanize him, as well as all of the Founding Fathers, came with calls to humanize the enslaved, the woman, the Native American, the child, and the immigrant. The postmodern Protean Jefferson, the American Sphinx, lives on. And returning to wherever we are in time, wherever we situated Thomas Jefferson, there is a letter being sent tomorrow, May 26, 1803, from Paris, that opened, quote, You will receive by this conveyance the ratification of our treaties. I shall feel some anxiety considering how much we have taken upon ourselves beyond our powers to learn from this transaction, meet your approbation. Here everybody is loud in its condemnation, and we are supposed to have made a more important acquisition for our country than the purchase of Germany would be for France." End quote. This was the follow-up to Robert Livingston's May 2, 1803 report, which Jefferson wouldn't receive until January, nearly six weeks between his elation and the wondering if the Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte would change his mind. Quote, New Orleans, as it now is, and as it was when France possessed it, and Louisiana are ours. End quote. <laughs>